Welcome to The Heart of the House, the podcast where we explore the text, times, and trapdoors of Shirley Jackson's masterpiece. I'm Kelly. And I'm Mackenzie. And over the next few weeks, we'll be taking an in-depth look at The Haunting of Hill House. Welcome back to The Heart of the House, everybody. Once again, I am Kelly, here, well, not physically here, but Mackenzie is with us via Zoom. And you have Scout with you, and I have Ruble. As usual, you are in Connecticut, but I am here in New York because guess what, everybody? The semester's over. Woohoo! How are you feeling about that? Um, I love it. It was probably my easiest semester, to be honest. Oh, how nice for you. I was just ready to be done. And I feel great. I'm jumping into my exam reading kind of in full. Obviously, Hill House is part of that reading. So I started that in February, but this is like the formal beginning of my exam reading. And that's been going great. I really sucked up a lot of your time with one book. No, I love it. It's been very fun. It'll be a nice when I am able to check it off. That'll feel really good. And you'll really, really know it. So you'll hope they'll ask you about it on your exam. Oh, yeah. And I feel like I can listen to these podcasts again when I'm prepping. To review. all the things that we thought. Sometimes I worry that this is putting me out of a job because essentially everything we've talked about is things I talk about when I teach Hill House. And why will I ever need to do that ever again? Because now I can just play the podcast. Anyway, so we are once again back after quite a while. Apologies for our long absence. Uh, any academic will tell you that the end of the semester is everybody's least favorite time of the semester. But after that, I was in Ireland, which was fun. Um, but now I'm back. What's been going on in the life of Bergen? What has been going on? Like I said, lots of gothic reading. So I'm definitely in the mode that we are in. I've been hanging out with my dog. Um, I submitted my first journal submission. Woohoo! That was, yeah, that was cool. I think I don't think that I will get in because it's quite a competitive journal, I think. And I just, I saw that they had a special issue that would have been perfect for me that just got published in February. So Mm -hmm. I kind of think that, you know what I mean? They won't want to publish it, but it was a good kind of learning opportunity to kind of go through the process and we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. But speaking of publishing news, Kelly, do you want to share your very exciting news? Uh, Well, it's not exciting yet because I haven't written the thing, but um, my abstract was accepted for the second ever edition of the Journal of Shirley Jackson Studies. So I will be writing about a very obscure production of We Have Always Lived in the Castle from the 60s. So coming to you winter 2024, check it out. All right. She's a huge theater buff. She knows everything. I don't know everything, but I know enough. And part of that is why I am here in New York, because Connecticut's not great for many things. It's not great for theater. It's also just boring. So I will be auditioning for Beauty and the Beast in June. So that'll be, if I get into it, you can come see that. Is that the one across from my house? Yes, and they rejected me once. I, obviously, they don't listen to this, so it's fine. But they rejected me once for Pride and Prejudice, and obviously I'm perfect for that play. You wanted Lizzie or Jane? I'm Lizzie. Like, it's just who I am. Unfortunately, my personality was molded too young, uh, and I was a pretentious, you know, literary gal, and it's too late for me. But all that is to say I would have been perfect for that part. 
but I'm hoping to get ensemble for Beauty and the Beast and just like get my foot in. So yeah, even though be, obviously I'm also perfect for Belle. You could be one of the can-can dancers. I want to be one of the flirty ladies that loves Gaston. Funnily enough, um, when I was in high school and they did Beauty and the Beast, if you were one of the, uh, the name was Silly Girls. If you were one of the Silly Girls, you were also one of the um, can-can napkins. Oh, love it. Yeah. I was actually in a production when I was like nine or 10 and I was, we were only, the kids were only in the VR guest scene, but I was a colander. So I had like a colander head and I like did dancing. Oh, yeah. Was cute. <laughs> All right. Well, Ruble is back there up to his usual shenanigans. So hopefully he won't make too much noise. But we are returning to the halls of Hill House. Um, in just a few minutes, we'll get a recap of what you missed last time, if you have not yet caught up. But we did receive some fan mail, which we really love. Uh, and this is going to be pursuant to our conversation, I don't want to say last week because it was a month ago, but last episode on Jackson and feminism. So Mackenzie, if you could please read for us the fan mail we received. Um, so the person wrote, hi, Kelly, here are two thoughts I had while listening to episode five of your amazing podcast. And that's the writer, folks. That's not me at living. <laughs> um, they wrote, uh, quote, because of what the house is doing to Eleanor and Theo and the parallels between them and the daughters, I wonder if we're being told that the house did this to the daughters instead of just this just being a replication of the daughter's relationship. Hmm. I love that. I think that's really cool. I hope we keep discussing that kind of angle. I like that, too. Um, and then they wrote, read the feminism discussion, echoing what Mackenzie said. I think we also have to remember that feminism came in waves. It was a progress and a process that always aims and should aim to evolve. So labeling something as, quote, the feminist feels like it doesn't necessarily make room for evolving. And yeah, I'm really glad um, that kind of resonated. I was actually kind of nervous after I said that, um, just because I wanted to make sure it was clear that like I am a feminist and like want all kind of content to be feminist. Uh, but it was more like an interrogation of like what we mean when we call something that and like the limitations of that. Um, so I'm glad that resonated with one of our listeners. Yeah, we definitely don't know this person in real life. No, I, I didn't read that in anyone's specific voice apologies if it sounds like something just attacked the computer because Ruble has just plunked himself down next to it. All right, so before we get into today's very heavy subject matter, I just want to remind everyone once again, most of the stuff that we will talk about today includes a trigger warning uh, for child abuse, uh, other types of abuse, this isn't a spoiler. Nothing good is happening from here on out, folks. So if you're having a maybe rough go of it, we're probably not the podcast for you at this juncture in your life. But before we do get into the text, Mackenzie, can you give the folks at home a reminder of where we left Eleanor and company? Yes. So they are, as Kelly said, having a rough go of it. Um, they have discovered that the that something, I was going to say the house, but something is leaving notes on the wall mm -hmm. for Eleanor. And she is uh, uh, both terrified and I think stimulated by this attention from the house and feels yeah. a little jealous. And so things are starting to deteriorate, deteriorate with their relationship. And then we get a second appearance of 
the notes in Theo's room. What does it say? Help Eleanor come home, Eleanor. Very spooky, no punctuations. We don't quite know what it means. And then when Eleanor and Theo sleep together, they like move into one room. Um, they have another kind of terrifying experience where Eleanor is holding Theo's hand and they're kind of gripping each other in the darkness as this thing is happening. And they wake up and, or the lights come on and Theo wakes up and Eleanor realizes she doesn't know whose hand she was holding. It wasn't Theo's like she thought. Yeah, probably the most famous moment in the novel aside from the opening. God, God, whose hand was I holding? All right. And it is such a simple thing yeah. to not know who's touching, right? It seems like you, you kind of describe it and you're like, okay, like she doesn't know whose hand she's holding, you know, big whoop. But like in the context of the reading, it's like, it just hits you like a train when she says that you're like, holy shit, like something is afoot. Or a hand. Or a hand. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling you to tell this to Alan. I don't know if any of our listeners are last podcast fans like me. But one of my favorite last podcasts on the left recurring jokes is, then who was phone? And I'm not going to explain it because that would ruin it. But then who was hand? Okay, so we are picking up with chapter six today. Mackenzie, can you remind us of the page numbers for chapter six in the Penguin edition? We are starting on page 121 and going until 131. Okay. Very Yes, very neat, very short, but as we'll see, quite a lot going on. Next time, just so I don't forget to say this later, we are going to read Chapter 7. Chapter 7 includes the entrance of Mrs. Montague, but we're not there quite yet. But where we have arrived, something I've been sort of teasing throughout the course of the podcast, is that very, very weird scene with Luke and Eleanor. Now, I've said many times over the course of this project that I don't know what XYZ means. I really don't know what this means. But um, as always, we welcome your input. And as always, Mackenzie is going to read for us. All right, here we go. This is the first paragraph of chapter six. I am learning the pathways of the heart, Eleanor thought quite seriously, and then wondered what she could have meant by thinking any such thing. It was afternoon and she sat in the sunlight on the steps of the summer house beside Luke. These are the silent pathways of the heart, she thought. She knew that she was pale and still shaken with dark circles under her eyes, but the sun was warm and the leaves moved gently overhead and Luke beside her lay lazily against the step. Luke, she asked, going slowly for fear of ridicule. Why do people want to talk to each other? I mean, what are the things people always want to find out about other people? Okay. Thoughts. It's like she is an alien <laughs> with only the simplest guide to humanity. Yeah. And so she's like trying to be human, but she doesn't have any context for what it means to talk to someone. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's like she's crash landed and she said, you know, why, why human want no thing? Yeah. Later on, she says to Theodora, I'm no good at talking to people and saying things. But interestingly enough, this is the first time we've seen her alone with Luke. And she's so super self-conscious. But we've seen her talk to Theodora before they had their falling out relatively easily. So yes, Eleanor can be very, very painfully shy and awkward. But so far, we haven't really seen that from her. 
here in Hill House. So this conversation is taking place in the summer house or at the foot of the summer house. So they're out in the garden. Eleanor is very clumsily trying to flirt, I think, or at least that's how I read it. Yeah. So she's trying to get to know Luke. Of course, the great irony is there's not more, all that much more to Luke than meets the eye. But she is trying desperately to make some kind of connection with him. What will you give me to remember you by? Or even nothing of the least importance has ever belonged to me. Can you help? Do you think that's true? Nothing important has ever belonged to Eleanor? I mean, right, importance is relative. So I'm sure she thinks that. But I think it's like a self-determined nothing. One of the questions I always like to ask people who read this novel for the first time is, do you get the impression that Eleanor's life sucks as much as she thinks it does before she comes to Hill House? I think with her mother, yes. Mm -hmm. I think with her sister and brother-in-law, maybe. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder the first scene that we see them, like, there's a certain malicious intent attached to everything. And like, I don't, it's not clear to me how much of that is projected by Eleanor. Like, I think there's a, there's a feasible situation where they are worried about her and are like, don't take the car because we might need it Mm -hmm. because they're like, you're not well, we don't want you going somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's feasible to me. Yeah. But I think the stuff with her mother, like, I mean, she 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 does have issues, and I don't think I don't think though I, I don't think issues. her mom was like totally normal, and she just like developed these neuroses on her own. Yeah, yeah. There is no world in which Eleanor had quote unquote a normal childhood. I guess the question really becomes: living in the 1950s, what would have been possible for Eleanor at that point? She lives with her sister. She seems financially tethered to her. She has no experience with men except for this very, very awkward foray. And so I think the degree to which Eleanor's life sucks uh, is contingent on the degree to which we believe that she can make her own way in the world, which I personally don't think she's capable of. But maybe she'll surprise us. She is very conscious that Luke is trying to make an imp- a good impression on her. Grant that Luke will take me at my worth, she thought, or at least let me not see the difference. That's really sad. It is sad. <laughs> and then she thinks, don't let me think, don't let me know too surely what he thinks of me. Now, this jumps out at me only on my second reading because it is in direct contrast to something that she's going to say later on. In the pages that we read for next time, she there's going to be a sort of series of vignettes where she's eavesdropping on everybody. And what she's thinking to herself is, I've got to know, I've got to know, as in I have to know what they think about me. So here she does not want to know what Luke thinks about her. Later on, she becomes obsessed with it. Yeah. And then... That's, that's pretty relatable, I think. Yeah. Like, I don't want to know what people think about me, but if I overheard a conversation about myself, I don't think I could resist. Yeah. And what she hears about herself is pretty devastating. I don't want to spoil it because you wouldn't be able to guess, but um, from here on out, there's going to be a lot of moments where I just think like, right in the feels. Anyway, so then she has a very weird thought. Did Theodora, she wondered, know him as well as this? 
it's just their triangle, right? I don't I don't think it's a love triangle. It's more like they are all mixed up together. Mm-hmm. So it's both she's both jealous of Theodora knowing him and also jealous of him for opening up to Theodora. Yeah. Yeah. In this scene and in a scene that comes a little bit later on in the pages for today, I get the sense that something has happened that we are not privy to. Yeah. Richard Pascal, who I know I've referenced quite a lot just because I used to teach his article, so I remember it very well. He thinks that maybe something happened between Luke and Eleanor just before this scene opens. I always thought that was nuts. I thought, absolutely not. No way. But I don't know. Like kissing? Or like a sexual thing. Yeah. I, th- I I think sex is pretty beyond the pale, but I don't know. What do you think? I buy that. I mean, I at this point, I definitely think Eleanor, or sorry, Theodora and Luke, I view as like canon. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't, I think that feels certain to me. Mm-hmm. I buy that because like the I am learning the pathways of the heart thing. Yeah. It's so stupid, but it is like the kind of thing that you think when you have a sexual encounter with someone for the first time, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like you are like, wow, like I have a body, you know? <laughs> I think in some ways, I- I'm not saying that this is the correct reading. I'm just throwing it out there. It's sadder if all they have been doing is sitting there and talking. And cause she mentions later that she was at the summer house for an hour. This conversation I would presume does not take an hour, But one of my favorite Eleanor details is when she thinks she's being daring and we see that she's done something that is, you know, not at all daring. Like, oh, I'm going to put the pants on. Better come stop me. To me, this seems like a, oh, I'm talking to a boy. My mom's going to be so mad type thing. Yeah. Although the the line that says she knew that she was pale and still shaken like obviously Mm. we are meant to understand that as from the night before but it could also be from you know whatever happened Uh, yeah I think I kind of agree with you I think she is so in her head that this kind of reaction would still be normal if nothing had happened yeah but I don't think it's out out of the realm of possibility of course though what does Luke want to talk about mommy yeah that's my answer to everything. <laughs> I never had a mother, he said, and the shock was enormous. So she thinks that he is gearing up to make some sort of deep revelation about himself. Of course, he can't make a deep revelation about himself. There's nothing there to reveal, but he wants to talk about his mother. And then he says one of those things that, as I said a few minutes ago, right in the feels, no one ever loved me because I belonged. I suppose you can understand that. She said yes, and he says, I thought you might. And she wanted, quite honestly, to slap his face. I guess I'm also confused, like, it's not, like, deep, right? But it is, It's not deep. He is talking about his inner life with her, you know what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. like, like you said, with someone who has had so little happen to him of any kind of uh, emotional significance, like, Mm -hmm. he is talking about his you know what I mean? Like his, his inner life. So I'm like, I guess that kind of confused me as well. Like, you know what I mean? Like it is a confidence in the context of Luke's existence. Yeah. I know a lot of people would be interested if we could see like a Hill House prequel of Theo's life. In some ways, I think 
Luke's would be more interesting and just that it would be so much harder to write because it doesn't seem like there's all that much going on. But we do know that he has some sort of mommy issues. Then she says, she says, not thinks, journeys end in lovers meeting. Yes, he said, I never had a mother as I told you. This is the first time we see her say journeys end in lovers meeting. She's thought it many times, but this is the first time she says it out loud. This moment strikes me as kind of funny in how sad it is, where she is clearly attempting to lead him on here. Journeys end in lovers meeting. Yeah, I never had a mother, as I just said. That reminds me of one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons, where it's two people sitting at a bar, and the guy goes, that reminds me of the thing I was going to say next regardless. So Luke is very clearly trying to tug the conversation back to his own mommy issues. And it's very interesting how Luke defines a mother. Can you read for us where he says, yes, he said, I never had a mother. Just read that paragraph, please. Yes, he said, I never had a mother, as I told you. Now I find that everyone else has had something that I missed. He smiled at her. I'm entirely selfish, he said ruefully and always hoping that someone will tell me to behave. Someone will make herself responsible for me and make me be grown up. Okay. What? <laughs> so why blah? It's like very, it's like man child, right? It's like exactly. a contemporary, yeah. it's like what I imagine men saying today. It's also like, so this thing, the like, now I find that everyone else has had something that I missed. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like that's like the state of, humanity like mm-hmm. we all have individual like you know what I mean I just thought it was so stupid like you're rich and most people don't have that like yeah it's just like this this weird kind of it's like when people like people are like uh there was a TikTok the other day of like this guy this like conventionally attractive guy being like Vogue I heard you're looking for diverse models as someone who's suffered from acne you know like it's like people are <laughs> trying to give themselves these like tragedies and it's like yeah. you know what I mean like Luke's like well everyone else had a mother and I did it and like is that crazy and the things he wants a mother for somebody to tell me to behave make herself responsible for me and make me be grown up there's something faintly sadomasochistic about that yeah and Eleanor to her credit stands up for herself why don't you grow up by yourself? She asked him and wondered how many people, how many women had already asked him that. Don't forget that she says, I'm impatient. He's simply not very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So those of us who have the misfortune to date men have had this experience. A lot of the times it's just boring. Have you had that experience? No, certainly. And I think like, I'm wondering if this does work for him Mm -hmm. in other contexts. Like, yeah, he's like, oh, mommy. Yeah. And other women are like, yes. Yeah. So Luke seems his MO seems to be like, oh, nobody ever made me responsible for me. Nobody ever told me what to do. By the way, I have a lot of money. It doesn't work on Eleanor because her mother was who her mother was and she has this really great line one of two lines that i want to put on a t-shirt today all i want is to be cherished and here i am talking gibberish with a selfish man love it 
You're right, girl. And the reappearance of the word cherish. Uh, I mentioned earlier that um, cherish is one of the words that Shirley uses as garlic in this novel. So it comes up again and again, like the cherubs. Uh, and cherishing has come up a couple of times before this. I think also the, the you must be a very lonely person. You must be very lonely indeed is mm -hmm. almost sarcastic. Yes. Like, because she like, I feel like she understands real loneliness. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, what the fuck? Like, oh, yeah, you're very lonely. Like, you must have a really lonely time. Yeah. And, Did and he thinks it's working. Like, I don't know. I guess I, I do want Luke to be more interesting than this. And so I'm trying to find a way. Mm -hmm. But maybe he's just not. He is, my reading of him at least, is that he is one of the many, 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 many shallow, effeminate men in the work of Jackson. In fact, in the next episode, we're going to see that Dr. Montague can be quite the same. All right. So the scene with Luke and Eleanor ends on a very ambiguous note. And then we get what's probably my favorite part of the novel. The scene where Luke finds in the library a book written by Hugh Crane for his daughter. Now, the inscription in the beginning, Memories for Sophia Ann Lester Crane, a legacy for her education and enlightenment during her lifetime from her affectionate and devoted father, Hugh Desmond Lester Crane, 21st June, 1881. So Too long. Yes. And in fact, it will not be the only very long title that we talk about. Sophia Ann Lester Crane. Now, we were talking earlier before we started recording, and I want to go through it again because that was a good conversation, about whether this is the older or the younger daughter. What do you think? I don't know. I don't have a sense. I feel a little unmoored with the section as I was telling you. What's What do you think? I always just assumed it was for the older daughter until I started teaching this. It never occurred to me that it could be for the younger daughter, but I have had students think it is. Does it matter all that much? Probably not. The only thing I would say is that we know that the younger daughter was the one who ended up having a normal ish life. And the older daughter was the one who never married. Now that might just be me imposing my own reading of the text onto it, but who knows? If you have an idea of which daughter Hugh Crane addressed this to, please let us know. We will read your idea on the podcast. But the other thing that I'm certain of that I want to flag that cannot be a coincidence is that the book is dedicated to Sophia on 21st June, 1881. Eleanor comes to Hill House on June 21st, the solstice. How old is Theo? How old is Theodora? Uh, we don't know. I would assume that she is roughly the same age as Eleanor, maybe in her 30s somewhere. So I'm wondering about the way Theo and Eleanor are mapping onto the daughters. Because, mm -hmm. like, if the house is either the force that controlled the father or the house is, like, the mirror of the father, mm -hmm. like, Eleanor is getting all the attention, yeah. right? Huh. And, and so I'm wondering, like, if one of them are older or younger, you know what I mean? I think yeah. Theo is jealous of the attention Eleanor is getting. And so if that maps onto the two daughters at all. Very interesting. And when you think about it, they fight over the house. 
At the end of this section, come to think of it, Theodora explicitly equates the house with Hugh Crane. She says, Hugh Crane, you were a dirty old man, you made a dirty old house. And so when yeah. the sisters then fight over the house, they are in a way fighting over their father. So who knows? I really like that reading. So what we've got here is essentially a how-to book that Hugh Crane has written for his daughter. Did you have the Chicken Soup for the Girl's Soul book when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember twisted. any of the stories? No, I just remember it being twisted. I remember the one about um, a girl whose mom had cancer. I don't know why I felt the need to read these, but this is Hugh Crane's Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul. He has made a scrapbook. Luke says, I seem to recognize several of the pictures. They're all glued in. Think of the books Hugh Crane hacked apart to make this. That's the doctor. Now here is a Goya etching, a horrible thing for a little girl to meditate upon. Now, since we know that Hugh Crane has put recognizable pictures into this, I think we are probably being signaled by Shirley to go in search of the pictures themselves. So I am fairly certain that the Goya reference refers to the famous painting, Saturn Devouring His Son. Mackenzie, can you tell the folks at home what you see? It's icky, folks. I'll put it in the uh, show notes. Big, big naked man mm -hmm. with um, a demented look in his eye is eating the head off of a smaller naked man with a thick ass. Yeah. This is a terrifying drawing. There's creeping sexuality here some people read this painting as sort of saturn being terrorized that he needs to do this i'm not up on my mythology i apologize i should have been but the idea of a devouring father we've already had the idea of a devouring mother where you know the house eats you eleanor's mother sort of sucked the life out of her here we have for the first time a depiction of a devouring ravenous father which, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, pretty aptly fits Hugh Crane. Mackenzie, can you read for us, please, the paragraph that tells us the caption Hugh Crane has written for this picture? Underneath he has written, Luke said, under this ugly picture, honor thy father and thy mother, daughter, authors of thy being, upon whom a heavy charge has been laid, that they lead their child in innocence and righteousness along the fearful narrow path to everlasting bliss and render her up at last to her God, a pious and virtuous soul. Reflect, daughter, upon the joy in heaven as the souls of these tiny creatures wing upward, release before they have learned aught of sin or faithlessness, and make it thine unceasing duty to remain as pure as these. Okay. What are you picking up on here? I mean, it's icky, right? What's icky about it? I just think any kind of purity yeah. monologue is icky. <laughs> yeah. Apologies for the jingling. Ruble has decided to take a stroll. And I think one thing I was thinking when I was looking at the picture of Saturn mm -hmm. is like, it does look like it's a doll. Yeah. Like there's this kind of failure to recognize the humanity of the thing because it is, a, it's being treated as a thing. It's something mm. you're like clutching. Yeah. That's kind of what it feels like here, right? Uh, authors of thy being. It's like you construct yeah. your child 
And so it's more an object than a person. I was hoping you would pick up on that. Authors of Thy Being. So Hugh Crane has authored this book, authored this child, and authored this house. All three of them equally not right. And isn't the mom dead at this point? It depends. Um, Their mother is, oh man, now I'm really testing my memory. I don't remember if the girls were born in the house. Their mother, was their mother the one who died in the carriage accident? I don't remember. I thought that was the stepmother. I don't think they were born in the house, right? No, because so the order of the deaths is the first wife dies when her carriage flips over, but I don't know if she was the mother of the girls. The second wife dies in a mysterious accident. The third wife is the one who gets tuberculosis and dies in Europe. Yeah. I don't remember which one is the girl's mother. It's like the house is the mom. Yeah. In some ways, maybe it doesn't matter who the girl's mother is. She just keeps replacing them. Um, I'm sure one of you is now screaming at the podcast that the mother is number one, two, or three. Um, Sorry about that. Once again, the real mother is the house. Okay, sorry, folks. We had to take a bit of a recording break as my parents were getting a delivery downstairs. But while we broke, we were continuing to talk about this question of which wife is the mother of the daughters. Mackenzie, can you tell the folks at home what we came up with? So we found the section that introduces the story. Um, So this is page 54 in The Penguin. Um, Hill House was built as a home for his family by a man named Hugh Crane. Unfortunately, Hill House was a sad house almost from the beginning. Hugh Crane's young wife died minutes before she was to set eyes on the house when the carriage bringing her here overturned in the driveway and a lady was brought lifeless into the home her husband had built for her. He was a sad and bitter man who Crane left with two small daughters to bring up, but he did not leave Hill House. So that is interesting to me because it doesn't necessarily say that that woman was the children's mother. Hmm. She's only called his young wife. And I think like, again, it's implied that that's the mother, but just thinking about the importance of motherhood to the story, I think Mm -hmm. it's an interesting omission. Theoretically, these children could have come from anywhere. Like if you, because Ukraine is so insistent on building, quote, a country home where he hoped to see his children and grandchildren live in comfortable luxury, like he could have just like procured two children for his like nefarious (laughs) deeds. Procured. Don't you think? He's like rich. He's like, get me two. I think they are his biological daughters, but as we were saying earlier, who their mother biologically was does not matter so much as the fact that they never really had one. So in some ways, in order to make up for what they lacked in a mother, Hugh Crane becomes what he is. Now, I want to just flag something because it relates back to what we talked about a couple of episodes ago. At the end of his first caption, he writes, daughter Hold apart from this world, that its lusts and ingratitudes corrupt thee not. Daughter, preserve thyself. So this notion of a woman apart from the world, whatever the world may be, as I said, is something that comes up again and again in Jackson. It comes up and we have always lived in the castle when Mrs. Clark tells Constance, come back into the world. It comes up in the sundial. The inscription on the sundial reads, what is this world? So 
the idea that home is pure and by staying there, you preserve yourself from the corruption of the world is a very Victorian ideal. However, we see how well that holds up with Hill House, which is to say it does not. So he also does illustrations of the seven deadly sins. But before we get there, we have what the doctor calls an illustration from Fox, F-O-X-E. So again, another allusion that is sort of sending us on this trail. So I mentioned that uh, the title of Ukraine's book was not the only very long title. Uh, we also have what are colloquially, 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 colloquial, God, <laughs> colloquially known as Fox's Martyrs. However, the full title from the 16th century, <clears throat> Acts and Monuments of These Latter and Perilous Days Touching Matters of the Church. So what Fox's Martyrs is, is a book of illuminations from the 16th century during the Protestant Reformation, where the original guy, Fox, and then um, many after him, essentially wrote a book on martyrology. So it has these really, really graphic illustrations of all the ways people were martyred by Catholics. Mackenzie, can you talk a little bit about um, the history of the Catholics and the Gothic? So the Gothic originally started as a genre that was very like anti-Catholic, but also like obsessed with Catholics, like yeah. obsessed with like the lustiness and like the sensuousness of Catholic ritual and Catholic aesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the early Gothic novels of the 18th century feature lusty nuns and lusty monks. So famously, Matthew Lewis's um, The Monk, you know, features just like some horny Catholics, right? The kind of... Um, the tension between a figure who is supposed to be of the spirit being kind of intensely and perversely of the body. Yeah. No disrespect to Matthew Lewis. I hate the monk. But yeah, um, the Catholics are never good people in the Gothic. And I just wanted to flag that because the Fox's Book of Martyrs is essentially a burn book. Ha ha. That's a pun you'll see in a second. Um, for Catholics, everything that Catholics did to torture Protestants and probably a lot of stuff they didn't do is in Fox's Martyrs. The thing I wanted to touch on, though, is that this was not something that was just written once. Fox's Martyrs was updated. And I believe those updates went on to as late as 1838. Yeah, so up until 1838, Fox's Martyrs was being reprinted with new and more graphic um, illustrations. Now, this is less clear to me exactly which illustrations they're looking at. And so I fully cop to imposing my own reading of the text onto it at this point. However, there are two pictures that I think maybe are the ones that they're looking at, but I want to talk about them because I think that they are quite important. So this first one, the caption, the burning of Mrs. Margaret Thurston and Mrs. Agnes Bonjour at Colchester in Essex. So the 1832 version was published in America, but of course the Reformation happened in England. So most of the etchings in the original Fox's Martyrs pertain to uh, 
martyrdom that happened in Scotland and England. Um, so Mackenzie, can you tell us a little bit about what we see in this image here? Well, there are some ladies being burned. Their faces are calm. Their bosoms are out. And so they are very like calm. And then everyone around them is like, what ho? <laughs> yeah. So we've got two women being burned at the stake. Tellingly, we can tell this is probably from the 18th century just because they're dressed like 18th century people. So they're being burned at the stake, but they look really good while it's happening. And so my impression of at least this image from Fox's Martyrs is that it's gratuitous in its violence, but as we saw in the picture of Goya, there's something vaguely titillating there too. Maybe I'm just a sicko. I don't know. What do you know? It's definitely horny. Okay. The boobs are in the middle of the picture. You can't look at it and not have your eye go there. So you're welcome. Is there America. a cleavage line? Yes. At least on the yeah, lady like, on the left. I feel left. like you don't include that. Like you don't accidentally do cleavage. <laughs> Mr. Fox. So let's look at a different engraving. We talked a little bit about this one yesterday. Okay, so this is a very different one. So this is from the 1832 version. The title is Inhuman Execution of a Mother, Her Two Daughters, and Her Infant at Guernsey, England in 1556. So this is a very, very different image. But because this one includes a child and it also includes burning, I wanted to look at it. So, Mackenzie, what do we have here? Sorry. I hadn't looked at this one before. Um, it is really silly. What's silly right? about it? So this uh, We're looking at the same one, right? Yeah, with the baby. Yeah, there's like a little guy. <laughs> <laughs> he is just like a leaping. Yeah. Okay, so I'll do a better description. Okay, there's three. <laughs> He's a leaping. <laughs> there's three women being burned at the stake. A similar situation with the chains and the flames. These they are, are covered up, lusty. though. Yeah, these They're are covered. not lusty at all. Yeah. They do have breasts, but they are kind of mom boobs, I think. And they're covered. High cut. Yeah. And actually, what's interesting, the, the townspeople, like in the last image, the townspeople were like kind of royal roiled up yeah it riled up riled up but here they're all quite like well, there's one woman in the back like just like crossing her arms and like looking mm -hmm. at them and then everyone else is like kind of just chilling yeah and then what made me laugh was there is little lord leaping he's like he's not a baby like that is not a baby <laughs> he looks honestly like if you copied and pasted a picture of frankenstein and then made it naked and then like did the minimizing. So, like you made him really small. Like and he has this stupid face. I don't know what is happening. Like he's just leaping. Like, he looks like he's leaping out of the flames. He's being thrown into the flames. Oh, into the flames. Yeah. Um, he looks like he's flying, honestly. He looks like he maybe doesn't mind being thrown into the flames all that much. I know that there are entire Twitter accounts dedicated to ugly medieval babies because the tradition back then was rather than drawing a baby, I'll just draw a tiny guy. But this is from 1832. People knew how to draw babies by then. He's got biceps. 
He, yeah, he's ripped and he all, he kind of all, so look at his hand. He's got a very large hand, which is actually like larger claws. than his head. Um, and we see his butt. So a lot of effort went into this baby. Anyway, um, the reason that I flagged those two is because they contain the images of burning. Now, Mackenzie, can you read for us, please, the caption that Luke reads where it begins, see this though? See this though, Luke said. He's burnt away a corner of the page, and here's what he says. Daughter, could you but hear for a moment the agony, the screaming, the dreadful crying out and repentance of those poor souls condemned to everlasting flame? Could thine eyes be seared but for an instant with the red glare of wasteland burning always? Alas, wretched beings in undying pain. Daughter, your father has this minute touched the corner of his page to his candle, and seen the frail paper shrivel and curl in the flame. Consider, daughter, that the heat of this candle is to the everlasting fires of hell as a grain of sand to the reaching desert. And as this paper burns in its slight flame, so shall your soul burn forever in a fire in fire a thousandfold more keen. Uh, what the fuck? Yeah. So this gives me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite American foundational texts. Mackenzie, you might know it. You might love it. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Oh, yeah. Have you read it? It's Jonathan Edwards, right? Yes, it is. He is saucy. I love Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. All right. Why? So because I just think that it's a blueprint for what America has become. So Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, given in New England, a sermon given in New England, 1741, by Reverend Jonathan Edwards. It's very long. It's a real downer. Um, <sighs> Mackenzie, can you give us the gist of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, if you remember? Um, I mean, the title kind of tells you. <laughs> he's just like you're all sinners uh -huh. and God is angry and yeah. you're in his hands. <laughs> yeah. So um, not surprisingly, the first time this speech was given, it was given in Massachusetts. Second time though, I learned that it's in our dear state of Connecticut. So maybe we can take a field trip to the plaque that marks the spot where sinners in the hands of an angry God 2.0 was given. That'd be fun. I would, do, I would love to do that. So he was a Puritan minister the whole sermon essentially is you are going to hell. There's nothing you can do and it's going to suck. And I'm going to detail all the ways it's going to suck. I flagged a certain passage because it jumped out at me in Hill House as being very reminiscent of this particular pack passage from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, and I want to read it to you just because I never get to teach this. I never get to talk about it. Um, to be clear, I am not at all endorsing what's going on in this work. However, I do think that it is pretty amazing. So this is page 18 of 35. So this is kind of in the middle when maybe people have started nodding off. It's also one of the most famous passages. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. 
tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you was suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning but that god's hand has held you up there is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of god provoking his pure eyes by your sinful wicked manner of attending his solemn worship Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Pretty metal. Dude. I just like, here's my thing with that. Yeah. Here's my thing with this. Like, why would you choose to believe in that? You know, like, I think actually one of the cool things about religion is you can just like say that I believe that, that you know <laughs> what I mean? And also obviously one of the fucked up parts about it. But like, if you can choose anything to believe in, why is that the thing you're like, I'm going to devote my life to that? I'm not an early Americanist, although parts of me want to be. So the answer is, I don't know. Um, but I think I can safely say that there wasn't much choice of what to believe. I know, but I'm saying the Quakers were there too. Oh, you that's right. Yeah. Like, why don't I be a Quaker when their God is nice? <laughs> It was more a it was more a philosophical question than a historical. Yeah. So <laughs> you are going to hell. There's nothing you can do. You still have to be good, but you're going. And the only reason that you're not going to hell this exact second is because God has not decided to do that to you yet. So not a very rosy view of humanity. And very clearly, there are echoes of this in Hugh Crane's book to his very young daughter. That's also what kind of made me laugh was like the fake thighs. Like he's trying to imitate like yeah. Bible talk. Like it's exactly. it like, it's like 1890, right? Or whatever. It's yeah. the 19th century. 1881. And so he's like being fake with his language. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So just as Hugh Crane sort of chops up old books and puts the images into his work, he does that very much with the language, right? He's appropriating things that he would have been familiar with and sticking it into this book in order to borrow some of the authority of that. Great point, Mackenzie. And in a way that's like cringe, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that is cringe. It's not like... It's not him playing with language in interesting ways. It's him. It's like somebody today being like, thy flower is of the purest metal. You know, like, it's, yeah. it's like embarrassing. As we'll see in just a minute, it is by far not the most cringe thing Hugh Crane did. So continuing with Hugh Crane's book, he has just written this very, very chilling screed to his daughter. And then he takes a lighter, but in some ways much darker turn. So that was his illustration of hell. Wait, Luke said, you haven't seen heaven yet. Even you can look at this one now. It's Blake and a bit stern, I think, but obviously better than hell. So one thing that I actually didn't know about Blake until, I don't know, maybe 2019, is that he was just as known for his visual art as he was for his writing. Uh, if I were in my office at home, I would be able to will not show you, but I would be able to look at um, the painting that I have in my office, which is Blake's illustration of the Canterbury Pilgrims. Um, that's not what we're talking about today, but we are going to talk about his painting of Jacob's Ladder. So because we get a Blake shout out, again, I'm fairly certain that this is the painting. 
Uh, Mackenzie, can you tell us what you see? Um, it's actually quite pretty. It's all these kind of golden folk with bounty. So they have like yeah. bread and a big jug. Haha, mm -hmm. big jugs. Um, <laughs> and they are going up the stairs, presumably to heaven. Mm -hmm. And there's some little kids, so they're like they're leading these kids by the hand, and then there's this jaunty kid who's on the shoulder of the woman who's friends with the jug lady, mm -hmm. who's like just like jauntily on her shoulder. Um, it's actually it's nice. I like to look at it to be honest, especially after the little freaky boy. <laughs> so we've got this image of people climbing the stairway to heaven leading little kids in by the hand and hugh crane writes daughter it is here that i will seek thee so mixed messages holy 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 in the pure light of heaven the angels praise him and one another endingly daughter it is here with a capital h that i will seek thee so it doesn't look like there's any men like i think hmm. this guy in the middle is supposed to be a guy but you can't really tell let's see you they think, all look either gender neutral or feminine. Yeah, they're kind of seraphim. Yeah. You heard it here and, like, first, And like, feels so... Yeah. Manny. There's no men in heaven. Everybody knows that. Well, that's why I'm like, why would he be like, I'm going to seek you here? Like, he's not going to be there. We'll see in just a minute whether or not he ended up in heaven. All right. So after the description of heaven and hell, things get very dark very quickly. The seven deadly sins, Luke says, I think the old boy drew them himself. So this is Hugh Crane at his artistic peak. Wait till lust, Luke told her. The old fellow outdid himself. Mackenzie, can you take it from here? Here is lust, Luke said. Was ever woman in this humor wooed? Good heavens, said the doctor. Good heavens. He must have drawn it himself, Luke said. For a child, the doctor was outraged. Okay. What do you think? You just know it's porny. Yeah. So. It's porny. <laughs> yeah. Hugh Crane has pretty explicitly drawn some sort of pornographic illustration in this book that he was going to give his daughter. And if we take that and pair it with the signature in his book, which, first of all, do you remember what he signs his book in? In blood. Yeah. So, Mackenzie, can you please read for us the inscription that Hugh Crane has signed in his own blood? Daughter, sacred packs are signed in blood, and I have here taken from my own wrist the vital fluid with which I bind you. Live virtuously, be meek, have faith in thy Redeemer, and in me thy Father, and I swear to thee that we will be joined together hereafter in unending bliss. Accept these precepts from thy devoted father, who in humbleness of spirit has made this book. May it serve its purpose well, my feeble effort, and preserve my child from the pitfalls of this world, and bring her safe to her father's arms in heaven. And signed, thy ever-loving father, in this world and the next, author of thy being, and guardian of thy virtue, and meekest love, Ukraine. What do you think? He's a nasty pervert. What? I mean, yeah, he's, 
Yeah. He's a nasty, nasty man. What jumps out at you as perverted in that? Well, I guess the biggest thing that jumps out to me is like, and this is very gothic, like mm-hmm. the confusion of language with father lowercase and father uppercase to the point where it's obvious he has a god complex and he's like like the whole author of thy being thing is Mm -hmm. obviously like i am god Mm -hmm. i made you yeah and the like we will be joined in everlasting bliss is like obviously a reference to the trinity right Mm -hmm. like he keeps talking of the spirit and being joined and it's kind of interesting because right it's her it's his daughter instead of his son but then it's obviously also like joined sexually so it's just like gross and also he's trying to be god and he's just like a sad man again it is just my interpretation this and the statue are to me the two clearest indications that his relationship with his daughters probably was sexual not healthy, not at all healthy work for a man, the doctor says, to say the least. And he signs it in also, blood like he's emo. Yeah. But also, like, the blood thing, he calls it his vital fluid. Uh, I never realized that. With which I bind you. Like, there's also, like, again, like you were saying, that sadomasochism of, like, yeah, discipline and, like, binding. Speaking of vital fluid, I did not understand the first time i read dracula that the melting candles which are literally made of whale sperm were metaphors like that just 100 percent over my head drip drop yeah sorry <laughs> i just i didn't get it um so then <laughs> then we have uh actually fun fact when i was in ireland i won a copy of dracula on a wonderful ghost tour because the guide said he would give a prize to anybody who could tell him the connection between psycho and nightmare on elm street i was the only one on the bus who knew it i got a copy of dracula wow what's the connection oh um that oh jamie lee curtis's mom was in psycho and jamie lee curtis is on no it's not nightmare on elm street it's halloween damn it sorry Very cool I still got it right, though, so haha. And then I left the copy of Dracula there because I had no more room in my suitcase, and I already have a copy of Dracula. So there is now an Airbnb in Rathmines, Dublin, that has a copy of Dracula, thanks to me. Also, I did see that we have an Irish listener. So if it's you who lives in that house, you're welcome. <laughs> Any final thoughts on Hugh Crane's very bizarre book? I'm wondering about the fact that the daughter or daughters left it in the house. Hmm. Like, along with the statue, honestly, like, it would seem to me you'd want to burn it or, you know, do whatnot with it to get rid of it. Yeah. Unless my reading is wrong, which it very well may be. But even if it was just, even if he was just like a religious nut who Mm. was ultra controlling, like... I would also want to get rid of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or even if it was like my dad drew a horny drawing for me, <laughs> I would be like, ew, like that is going to go away. <laughs> so as Theodora infamously said, 
dirty old man, dirty old house. So isn't it interesting that in a house that is so intensely feminine in the way it's built, in the way it's described, made by a man. So we know God supposedly created man in his image, just as Ukraine created his house in his image. Dr. Montague says earlier he made his house to suit his mind. So very strange. Okay, so we are now approaching the text's one and only visible haunting. Very exciting. But before we get there, we have some more Theo Eleanor weirdness. And Mackenzie, take it away. Theodora curled by the fire, looking up wickedly at Eleanor. At the other end of the room, the chessmen moved softly, jarring with little sounds against the table. And Theodora spoke gently, tormentingly. Will you have him at your little apartment now and offer him to drink from your cup of stars? Eleanor looked into the fire, not answering. I've been so silly, she thought. I've been a fool. Is there room enough for two? Would he come if you asked him? Nothing could be worse than this, Eleanor thought. I've been a fool. Perhaps he has been longing for a tiny home, something smaller, of course, than Hill House. Perhaps he will come home with you. A fool, a ludicrous fool. Okay. What do you think is going on here? I don't know. I don't know what to think. What do you think? Um, I don't know. My best guess is that this is another instance where something has happened that we were not privy to. Um, I think probably what would make the most sense is Eleanor told Theodora, but maybe Luke told Theodora. Maybe Theodora saw. We don't know. In any case, Theodora is not taking it well. And she's expressing her jealousy. And again, we don't know who she's jealous of in really, really needling ways. Are you going to let him come to your house and offer him to drink from your cup of stars? It's one thing for her to be making fun of Eleanor. It's another thing entirely for her to be making fun of Eleanor using something that she knows that's important to her. And I think there's also the suggestion that Theodora knows it's fate. Mm-hmm. Two things here. Theodora is already looking towards life after Hill House, something we have not seen Eleanor yet do. And she's very, very angry at the hint of anything between Luke and Eleanor. And as I said, we don't know why, because we don't know who she is jealous of. What do you think? I mean, I think there is something, like like I said, like it's a triangle, right? of them being all jealous of each other. But I think there's also like a cultural and social, the in social context of like the rich young man Mm -hmm. and the two women. So even if their three relationships are more complicated than that, there's also the sense of like winning. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Theodora is really, really angry. Then Eleanor gets up in a huff. I had to come, she said to the world outside because she stormed out of the house. And I've mentioned before that I have a favorite sentence in this novel. Here it is. Fear and guilt are sisters, semicolon, Theodora caught her on the lawn. Applause. How do you, what are, what's your interpretation of that? So I love this sentence um, because it is, I think, probably the best use semicolon in all of literature. 
Um, and because I always used to use it to teach semicolons because my students never knew how to use them. So fear and guilt are sisters, semicolon. Theodora met her on the lawn. So the semicolon is used, at least in my head, for the weighing of two things that could be separate but are instead pushed together. And so I think that is a graphic metaphor for Theodora and Eleanor. And then fear and guilt are sisters. I don't know who would be fear, who would be guilt, but we've got sisters and we've got this notion of two things that are supposed to be separate being stuck together. And then in the same sentence, we have Theodora's appearance on the lawn. I just think that's great. No? No, it is great. <laughs> I get excited over semicolons. Okay. So they're walking on the path. Again, much of what's upsetting them is not being said here. And so we are left to read between the lines. Eleanor hits her foot on a rock. And then she says to Theo, I can't imagine why you think you have any right to interfere in my affairs. I'm sure that nothing I do is of any interest to you. That's right. Theo said grimly, nothing that you do is of any interest to me. Mean. So what I'm left wondering is what did Theo interfere with? Her relationship, right? I, but I don't know that she did. I, I think I mentioned before that the first time I read this novel, I didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like it is because of things like this, where everything is so unbelievably beneath the surface that I just could not parse it. Well, I think um, maybe if um, the scene that's left unwritten is like not even Theodora and Luke, like, having a romantic or sexual encounter mm -hmm. but them like talking about Eleanor and her crush on Luke yeah what do you think they might have said about her like if Theodora's like in the guise of like big sister is like you need to stop playing with her feelings mm -hmm. like she is a big she's a huge crush on you and she's just this like pathetic little kid you know yeah I don't know if I think Eleanor has a crush on Luke. Really? I think crush in terms of like she wants to be noticed by him. I see it as her trying very, very hard to check a box. Like we know that she's never sat and talked alone with any man. Jackson explicitly writes that. I don't know. I don't feel any attraction between Eleanor and Luke the way I do between Eleanor and Theo. In well, any and case. I think also, yeah. sorry, that line, that's like nothing that you do is of any interest to me. Like on the surface, that's just mean yeah. and like kind of funny. Um, but I think it could also be sarcastic. Like, mm. yeah, nothing you do is interesting to me. Like, of course, you know, that's not true. Like, you know, there's something between us mm. that makes what you do of concern to me. This is a very interesting thing to keep in mind until the end of the novel. Does Theodora care at all what Nell does? We'll see. We're walking on either side of a fence, Eleanor thought, but I have a right to live too. I wasted an hour with Luke at the summer house trying to prove it. Then something very interesting happens. You're making a fool of yourself, Theodora said. So we know that Eleanor 
constantly tells herself that she's a fool. And in my unfortunately voluminous experience with having been bullied, the things that upset me most that bullies said to me were always the things that I already thought about myself. And so for Eleanor to constantly tell herself she's a fool and then Theodora to say, you're making a fool of yourself, we would think that would be really super devastating. But yeah. that doesn't happen. Instead, Eleanor, miracle of miracles, stands up for yourself. You're making a fool of yourself, Theodora said. Suppose I'm not, though. You'd mind terribly if you turned out to be wrong this time, wouldn't you? And they they talk like they've known each other for years. Mm -hmm. Like, it's the kind of resentment that, like, builds up over decades, not days. Yeah. Anyway, Eleanor said in a reasonable tone, it doesn't mean anything to you no matter what happens. Why should you care whether you make a, whether I make a fool of myself? We talk about, you know, Oscar Wilde and the love that dare not speak its name. Jackson comes pretty close to that here. Nothing irrevocable had yet been spoken, but there was only the barest margin of safety left them, another semicolon, each of them moving delicately along the outskirts of an open question. And once spoken, such a question as, do you love me, could never be answered or forgotten. That's, I guess that's why I think it's about, it's maybe Eleanor doesn't have real feelings for Luke, hmm. but it's about the safety that a relationship with him would give Eleanor like that checkbox that she wants. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think Theo's making fun of her is because she's like, that's not really what you want. What about and you're making a fool of yourself when everybody knows what's actually happening. What about the do you love me? So it's couched in terms of what neither Eleanor nor Theodora is saying. Yeah. So such a question that might come up in the situation, for example, do you love me, could never be answered or forgotten. I just think that's a very odd thing to say. Um, Eleanor here says something that I want on a t-shirt. I'm no good at talking to people and saying things. Put that on my gravestone. Then Theodora laughs. What are you good at running away? Again, just one of those little... Mm. But that's such a funny question, too, because she's not good at running away. She's literally done it one time, and it was, like, the biggest thing that's ever happened to her. <laughs> and Theodora, in fact, doesn't even know that she ran away. Yeah, like, she ran away after 11 years, and she never actually ran away from her mother. Yeah. Wow. So maybe she's not even good at that. <laughs> so... One thing that I want to highlight, and we'll see it in just a minute, they are walking along a path. Now, Mackenzie, can you read for us, please? Eleanor caught her breath and Theodora's hand tightened. Eleanor caught her breath and Theodora's hand tightened, warning her to be quiet. On either side of them, the trees, silent, relinquished the dark color they had held, paled, grew transparent, and stood white and ghastly against the black sky. The grass was colorless, the path wide and black. There was nothing else. Eleanor's teeth were chattering and the nausea of fear almost doubled her. Her arms shivered under Theodora's holding hand, now almost a clutch. And she felt every slow step as a willed act, a precise mad insistence upon the putting of one foot down after the other as the only sane choice. 
Her eyes hurt with tears against the screaming blackness of the path and the shuddering whiteness of the trees. And she thought with a clear, intelligent picture of the words in her mind burning. Now I am really afraid. Okay. So this is the first time we see Eleanor outside Hill House at night. What struck me was like the difference between the fear of being enclosed and mm-hmm. the fear of like total lack of enclosure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like anything could be out there. Yeah. And anywhere they go, the thing could be. The thing. Yeah. Yeah. So like in the house, you know, it's coming towards you and you're in this little room and you have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. But outside it's the thing could be anything or anywhere. I love that. The other thing that I want to point out here is that this is kind of like the scene in the wizard of Oz when Dorothy steps out of the house into munchkin land and suddenly it's in color. This is the reverse of that. So the film, if we can imagine it that way is turning black and white. They're holding hands. They're walking along a path They keep moving because it is the only physical act possible to them. The only thing left to keep them from sinking into the awful blackness and whiteness and luminous evil glow. The path unwound. Perhaps it was taking them somewhere willfully since neither of them could step off it and go knowingly into the annihilation of whiteness that was the grass on either side. So it's nighttime, but the grass that's next to them is white, not black. Where were they? The path led them to its destined end and died beneath their feet. In my interpretation, this is Journey's End. Ooh. And Mackenzie, can you read for us, please? The paragraph that begins, the path that led them to its distant end. Destined end. The path led them to its destined end and died beneath their feet. Eleanor and Theodora looked into a garden their eyes blinded with the light of sun and rich color. Incredibly, there was a picnic party on the grass in the garden. They could hear the laughter of the children and the affectionate, amused voices of the mother and father. The grass was richly, thickly green. The flowers were colored red and orange and yellow. The sky was blue and gold. And one child wore a scarlet jumper and raised its voice again in laughter, tumbling after a puppy over the grass. There was a checked tablecloth spread out and smiling. The mother leaned over to take up a plate of bright fruit. Then Theodora screamed. Okay. What the hell? So the color has returned. That's a big thing, right? Yes. Was there a red sweater in the beginning of the book? Yes. Eleanor has a red sweater. I feel, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, I, it's not this part of the book. I just, everything, I don't know what to make of it. Hmm. Um, I don't know what to make of the puppy either. I don't know what to make of the puppy. My read of this scene is that in its own insidious way, Hill House is giving them what they've been asking for. Remember, Theo keeps saying we have to have a picnic. Hill House is saying, here's your picnic. But also, I think that for Eleanor, here we're learning, and again, only my interpretation when she says journeys end in lovers meeting and we see the path reach its destined end 
and she sees the loving family that Eleanor, the lover that she's looking for does not need to be a romantic partner. Um, I am not the only person who thinks this, my boy, Richard Pascal does too, but I do think that journeys end in lovers meeting, whether consciously or not, Eleanor is just looking for somebody to love her. Yeah. And so interestingly though, the picnic that we're seeing is unlikely to ever have happened on the grounds of Hill House. The people who are there do not match the people who we know used to live there. And so we don't know what this is. We don't know where it came from. And Theodora is the one who screams. Don't look back, run. Can you read that next paragraph, please, that begins running without knowing why she ran? Running without knowing why she ran, Eleanor thought that she would catch her foot in the check tablecloth. She was afraid she might stumble over the puppy, but as they ran across the garden, there was nothing except weeds growing blackly in the darkness and Theodora screaming still trampled over the bushes where there had been flowers and stumbled sobbing over half buried stones and what might've been a broken cup. Then they were beating and scratching wildly at the white stone wall where vines grew blackly screaming still and begging to be let out until a rusted iron gate gave way and they ran crying and grasping crying and gasping and somehow holding hands across the kitchen garden of Hill House and crashed through a back door into the kitchen to see Luke and the doctor hurrying to them. What happened? Luke said, catching at Theodora. Are you all right? Okay. Two things here. One, something I forgot to point out in the picnic scene. The language that Jackson uses here is incredibly reminiscent of the language that begins the lottery. So we have the grass is richly green here and the lottery begins. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely and the grass was richly green. So almost the precise same phrasing. We've got the repetition of richly green. Jackson loves to take spooky things and put them in idyllic settings. So that's one thing that I just wanted to flag. The other thing is what Eleanor stumbles over. Half-buried stones and what might have been a broken cup. A cup of stars. Yeah. This is so what is has that become. the terror then? The terror of your dreams being shown to you, perhaps in their impossibility? Like Could be. Being known and then that dream being not possible. Yeah. I... Like most things in this novel, I don't know what's going on with the picnic scene. I am pretty sure, though, that the cup that Eleanor maybe does or does not trip over is a call out to, here's what's become of your cup of stars, which is really sad. Yeah, there's something, there's some kind of triangulation between Theodore and Eleanor and Eleanor and her sister. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of what's disturbing is like Eleanor and Theo are being made to be the daughters mm-hmm. or the sisters. And Eleanor wants a sister that she can rely on or like. Mm-hmm. But then she also has like sexual feelings for this person who's being constructed as her sister and so there's this like perversity that is horrifying yeah we see in the pages for 
if not next time, then the time after, Eleanor make one final desperate attempt to reach out to Theodora. And that is, well, I don't want to spoil it, but that's my other favorite scene. So I want to talk about what exactly they see here. We talked about this a little bit during the break. Eleanor is the one who says we saw a picnic. Theodora laughed in a little continuing cry, laughing on and on thinly, and said through her laughter, I looked back, I went and looked behind us, ellipsis, and laughed on. So here again, we have one of Jackson's famous ellipses. We don't know exactly what Theodora saw. Eleanor, Theodora turned wildly and put her head against Eleanor. Eleanor, she said, Eleanor. And holding Theodora, Eleanor looked up at Luke and the doctor and felt the room rock madly. And time, as she had always known time, stop. End of chapter six. What? What do you think? It's the first time... I guess it's not the first time that time has been invoked in this way because they keep talking about how time kind of feels weird but I guess I interpreted that as like it's vacation time and then this mm. is something else this is something like time and space become augmented augmented and collapsed at the same time haha <laughs> time yeah this what do you think it just, it really puzzles me. I don't know why they react in the way they do. I don't know why they see this. I don't know why anything is happening. My first impression when I read this scene was that the reactions were outsized to what they were seeing. Because the apparition that they see is not scary. And that's yeah. something that I think is really important to acknowledge here in Hill House. The things that you hear and see are scary only in that you're not supposed to be hearing and seeing them. You hear a child crying, you hear a child laughing, you see a people having a picnic. Okay, yes, there is the pounding on the doors, but you're not seeing somebody trying to come kill you. And that is one of the things that I think many of the film adaptations of Hill House get wrong. One thing that I know the um, Netflix adaptation does is it makes the apparitions notably scary which I think is somehow making them less scary than if they are benign like this. But yeah, I, I, I have run out of, I don't know is to apply to this novel. The only thing I am wondering is if Theo looks back and sees the corruption of the family. You, you think she sees him abusing his daughters? Yeah. Huh. I never thought of that. Could be. Richard Pascal thinks Theo sees something very different. I'm not going to say what it is because um, it's a spoiler. Um, I want to know. You will know soon enough. We've only got about okay. 50 pages left. So okay. um, this is episode seven. Our next episode, episode eight, will be covering chapter seven. So it's a little bit confusing. Um, Mackenzie, can you let the folks at home know what pages in the Penguin version chapter seven takes up? 132. Two. One. Fifty-one. Okay. So we've got about 20 pages for next time. Again, things are going to get weirder. Things are going to get somehow both scarier and less scary. We've got the arrival of Mrs. Montague. And Mrs. Montague gets reactions from the house that are very interesting. So stay tuned. I'm so excited. Thanks. 
Any final thoughts for the folks at home? I'm ready. I'm not ready to be done, but I want to know Yeah. what I want to know. What do you think is going to happen? Um, uh, I don't know. I kind of think they're all just going to go home. Okay. Everybody my, go home. Yeah, like... Because that's like what you were saying, like the horror is that it's the every, it, there's like these random things happening that aren't scary. Mm-hmm. And so then like, in some ways that would be the ultimate horror is to have to go home and yeah. like witness the everyday kind of knowing the darkness that lurks beneath. I love that. And I want you to remember that you said that. Okay. <laughs> and on that note. Sleep tight, folks. Bye-bye. Bye.